Hello and welcome to the Monobank History of Scotland podcast, a series of comedy podcasts all about Scotland's history. You'd never guessed, would you? Uh, my name is Daniel, Daniel Dowdy. I am a stand-up comedian that you have not heard of and I am based in the beautiful city of Edinburgh in Scotland. I am your host and I do a thing called the Montebank Comedy Walk of Edinburgh and what that involves is me taking visitors to the city around the beautiful city of Edinburgh, showing them the sights, telling them the history and trying to make them laugh at the same time. Now, the reason I'm telling you this is because that is what this podcast is. That is what these series of podcasts are all about, is I'm trying to give Scottish history the Montebank treatment. So hopefully... As you're listening to this, you will learn a little and you'll laugh a lot as well. Uh, Today's podcast is all about Robert the Bruce, the most famous of Scottish kings. And I feel like, you know, like history's been pretty good to you if you're remembered as the something. You know, unless you're like me, you know, and the kids at my school, they used to refer to me as Daniel the Downey, you know, like... Which was less kind of regal and more insinuating I had learning difficulties, you know. Uh, and that's, that's a wound I've not opened in a while. I'm not going to lie to you, folks. Um, in England, like, England have got loads of good the kings, you know, like Edward the Confessor, William the Conqueror, Richard the Lionheart. And the best we could come up with was Robert the Bruce. Like, we've just stuck a the in between the guy's first and second names. It lacks a wee bit of imagination, doesn't it? And anyway, this this podcast, this is part one of the Robert the Bruce story, and this part is going to be all about his how his kind of constant evasion of the authorities it um, it endeared him to the general public. You know, it's the same way how everyone loves O.J. Simpson. You know, the the big juice there. Listen, if this is the first time that you're listening to the Montebank History of Scotland podcast, that's the sort of nonsense that you should expect, alright? I'm not going to lie to you. It's mainly Scottish history mixed in with a lot of jobby jokes and Tory bashing, right? If that sounds like your thing, you're going to enjoy it. If this is the first time that you are listening to the podcast, might I suggest you go back to the first episode. Uh, they're all chronological. I don't really talk about anything particularly topical in the podcast, and I'll give you a good bit of kind of background info for the preceding podcasts. Uh, right, anyway, so without further ado, folks, here you go. This is uh, part one of the Robert the Bruce story, Robert the Bruce, Outlaw King. I do hope you enjoy it. Have fun out there, and I shall see you on the other side. Enjoy! Modern Scottish history tends to paint William Wallace as the ultimate patriotic Scottish hero, and that is because he, unlike Robert the Bruce, never submitted to the English, he never paid homage to Edward, and he never signed the ragman's rule of 1296. And let's face it, it definitely, it definitely helps that he died a pretty grisly death as well, doesn't it? Do you know what I mean? It's the same kind of reasoning with Princess Diana, do you know what I mean, like, people absolutely adore her, and, like, I have to be honest, I don't really get it, like, I don't, I don't really know what it was that Princess Diana did, do you know what I mean, other than proving that speeding is more dangerous than landmines, you know, <laughs> okay, right, okay, admittedly, that was a cheap excuse um, to do a Princess Diana joke there, right, I do apologise, if you're upset by that, I'm sorry, right, but I don't get, I don't really get how folk are still upset about that, 20, like, it's still not okay to do that joke 23 years after her death, do you know what I mean, it's madness, especially since, like, the clue was in the name, do you know what I mean, she was called Princess Di, for Christ's sake. Anyway, Robert the Bruce, um, during his during the time of William Wallace's guardianship and leadership, uh, he changed his allegiances according to what he perceived as being best for his own dynastic ambitions. And for that, he's criticised. He's criticised for lacking the loyalty and the patriotism of Wallace, which is fair enough. But the thing is, the concept of, of patriotism 
it was pretty much non-existent at that time. You know, that's not something that would have been in Robert the Bruce's mind at all, really. And but like what I'm saying is, there's really no need to get so upset about Robert the Bruce becoming the Leicester manager. Do you know what I mean? Like, just let it go, guys. Come on, that's enough now. Robert Bruce also gets criticised for being a, a Norman incomer, a foreigner. And this is despite the fact that he was the sixth Robert Bruce to be born in Scotland since David I granted the Bruces the lands of Annandale in the early 12th century. Not that that would make a difference to our current UK government, do you know what I mean? Like, six generations of Bruces would not stop the Tories from wind-rushing the shit out of them, you know? It should be said that the Wallaces, they too came to Scotland in the reign of David I. They're thought to have followed the Stuarts. So William Wallace was technically of Anglo kind of Norman stock as well. And yes, right, okay, Robert the Bruce, he, he changed sides like neighbours swapping cups of sugar. But it doesn't detract from the fact that he is Scotland's most important king of all time. Without his perseverance and leadership, Scotland wouldn't even exist as a country today. Not that Scotland does actually exist as a country today, you know, because according to Boris Johnson, there is no border between Scotland and England, which I find a wee bit confusing because I'm not sure what we're supposed to refer to the borders as these days. Do you know what I mean? Like, what is that part of Scotland called now? Do you know what I mean? Is it is it, uh, is it Never Neverland? Is it the Nay Borders? The end of your bit, the start of our bit. Like, I've I've got mates who live in Peebles and I don't know where they live anymore. If someone from the Conservative Party could get in touch and tell me where I'm supposed to post my Christmas card this year, then that would be a big, big help. Thank you very much. Robert Bruce was the eldest of ten children. He had five sisters, Mary, Christian, Matilda, Margaret and Isabella. And he had four brothers, Edward, Thomas, Alexander and Neil. And in 1295, he married Isabella of Mar, who died the following year um, in childbirth while giving birth to their daughter, Marjorie. Now, Marjorie would become a, a key figure in Scottish history. It was her marriage to Walter Stewart, Walter the Steward, in 1315 that started the most famous royal dynasty in Scottish history, the Stuarts, who would rule in Scotland for over 340 years. Now, that is a record that our current monarch is on course to absolutely smash because uh, I'm fairly certain that she's either a mortal, either that or it's a hologram. I don't know, but it's definitely one of the two. After Wallace's defeat at Falkirk, Robert Bruce and his great rival John Common, the Red Common, which was just a polite way of saying that he was ginger. You know, it'd be like if you were to start calling Neil Lennon the Red Lennon. It might, it might make him sound a bit more grand, a bit more regal. Probably wouldn't be enough to stop heart supporters from chucking batteries at the guy, but still, nonetheless, you know. Anyway, John Common and Robert Bruce, they became joint guardians of the realm of Scotland in the absence of uh, the Scottish king, John Balliol, who was still in exile in France. And the joint guardianship, it fell apart as their rivalry was too great. The rivalry between the two most powerful families in Scotland, the Bruces and the Commons, it was just too great. Now, in the last podcast, I compared the Bruces and the, the Commons to being like the old firm, but the truth is they were nothing like the old firm, because um, their rivalry was based on differing personalities and ambitions and not on religion, you know. But the commons of the commons and the Bruces were the more powerful of the two. They were the, the government party throughout the 13th century. They were they had fought and they were fighting to put John Balliol on the throne. Their power base was in the north of Scotland, but a series of marriage alliances meant that they had significant presence throughout the entire realm, whereas the Bruces, they were mainly restricted to their their traditional power base in the southwest 
of Scotland. And the Bruces, they were not fighting to put John, or they didn't want John Balliol to be reinstated to the throne. They were pursuing their own claim, which the Bruce inherited on his father's death in March 1304. In 1302, it looked like John Balliol could legitimately make a return to Scotland and become the king once again. And so... Bruce, protecting his own claim, defected and submitted to Edward. Edward rewarded him with a marriage to Elizabeth de Burg, the daughter of the Earl of Ulster. Now, Bruce, he was already pretty violent and unhinged. The last thing that he really needed to do was to marry a Northern Irish lassie. But Elizabeth de Bomb, uh, sorry, de Burg, uh, she was pretty cool. She was cool as ice. You could say she was an ice de Burg. I thank you very much. Uh, anyway, Bruce's marriage to Elizabeth, Elizabeth de Burgh would provide him with support in Ireland, which would be greatly needed in the years to come. Now, Bruce's defection to Edward in 1302 lost him a lot of support in Scotland. It was John Common, the Red Common, who was the real patriot in the struggles against English rule, not Robert Bruce. A political comeback at that time looked incredibly unlikely. But the situation changed when Common surrendered on behalf of the kingdom in February 1304. Support for the resistance against England was wavering. A war-weary Scotland, abandoned by France, was beginning to accept its fate. But Edward was ageing, and unlike Elizabeth II, he wasn't going to live forever. And Bruce, he felt like he would get his opportunity soon, and so he began making plans behind Edward's back. On the 11th of June 1304, while Edward was besieging Stirling Castle, Robert Bruce met with the patriotic Bishop William Lamberton at Cambus Kenneth Abbey, where the two men agreed to support a Bruce attempt at the throne. Now, Edward had no idea that this meeting had taken place, and I mean, how could he know? Do you know what I mean? Like, secret meetings with bishops and churches are usually reserved for children. But Edward may not have known about the meeting, but he was perfectly aware of Bruce's dynastic ambitions, and so in this newly conquered Scotland, there was to be no important administrative position for Robert Bruce. Bruce was preparing a political comeback, but he knew that he would require the help of the commons to fulfil any of his dynastic ambitions. It has been suggested that a deal had been struck between Robert Bruce and John Common that proposed if Robert Bruce became king, then he would give up all of the Bruce lands to the commons. And likewise, if John Common became king, he would give up all of the common lands to the Bruces. Now, it should be pointed out that this was all apparently happening while the actual King of Scotland, John Balliol, was in France. Now, it's not known whether this agreement actually existed or not. It certainly wasn't written on paper because if such a document was to fall into Edward's hands, it would result in pretty dire consequences. But the point here is, is that John Common and Robert Bruce, they were both perfectly aware that they needed each other to fulfil their respective dynastic ambitions. And so, the two met in the sanctuary of Greyfriars Church in Dumfries on the 10th of February 1306 to discuss their future plans. Whether it was over their rival aspirations for the crown or because Common refused to join Bruce's proposed coup against English rule, the two men quarrelled. Uh, Bruce, he pulled a dagger and he stabbed John Common in Greyfriars Church. The Bruce rushed out of the church in a panic and his compatriot, Sir Roger Kirkpatrick, went back in to finish the job, saying the words, I make sicker, or I make certain, which doesn't make that guy sound like a fucking maniac 
at all, right? Um, now, committing murder in a church was pretty bad, you know, because committing crimes in churches is usually reserved for the priest. But still, it was not as mental as tear-gassing folk and shooting at them just so you can get your photo taken outside of a church, you know, but still pretty mad nonetheless. Now, some commentators have claimed that the killing of John Common was premeditated. Now, the people that say that are the same people who think the coronavirus is man-made and that wearing a mask will... I don't know, give you scabies or something. Because there's no way that the murder was pre-planned. The Bruce knew he needed common support to take on Edward, and antagonising the most powerful family in the country by a sacrilegious murder would be considered the herd immunity of its time. A fucking terrible plan, basically. But whatever his motivations, Robert the Bruce's actions cast the die and it precipitated a whirlwind of events that would lead to civil war in Scotland. Bruce had to act quickly. He seized common castles in the southwest and he travelled immediately to Glasgow where he confessed to George Wishop, the Bishop of Glasgow, and received absolution. Because, you know, if you want forgiveness for stabbing someone in a church, then Glasgow is definitely the place to do it. Do you know what I mean? Like, they deal with that sort of thing all the time there. So, like, ah, you, you stabbed a rival in a church, did you? Didn't he worry about that, son? A beep boop 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 There's your absolution. Now get yourself up the road. So six weeks after the murder of John Common, Robert Bruce, he was crowned King of Scots in a, a makeshift ceremony at Schoon on the 25th of March 1306. It was the first coronation of a Scottish king without the Stone of Destiny after Edward had removed the stone in 1296. And only the coronation of Meghan Markle could have caused more controversy because it sparked civil war, a civil war in which Bruce had little support. Like, he, he, he didn't represent the community of the realm and he had crowned himself king while John Balliol, the actual king, was still in exile in France. And do you know what? Like, that's what you should do, Charles. See, the next time the Queen is in France, just just crown yourself king and, and see what happens. You know, no, you might get away with it. You could, you could even have her murdered. You know what I mean? You would not be the first royal to order the death of another royal while they were in France. You know what I mean, my friend? Uh, I, I don't know what's going on with me and Princess Di jokes today. Honestly, need to give it a rest, Daniel. Edward appointed John Common's brother-in-law, Imer de Valence, the soon-to-be Earl of Pembroke, as his uh, special lieutenant in Scotland, instructing Pembroke to raise the dragon banner. Um, now, basically, what this means is that the normal conventions of war are suspended and captured knights are to be treated as outlaws and executed. Basically, when the dragon banner goes up, so does the death rate. Uh, it's a bit like the R number in that respect. Uh, burn and slay was the instruction from Edward. It was all very Game of Thrones-esque, you know. And to be fair, our UK government is very Game of Thrones-esque. Not just because they're willing to burn and slay people, but also because, you know, it's, it's full of tits, isn't it? And to make things worse for Robert the Bruce, Edward, he pushed the Pope to have him excommunicated, which was confirmed by the Archbishop of Canterbury on the 5th of June 1306. And it would take Robert Bruce 22 years to get this excommunication from the Pope lifted. Immediately after his makeshift coronation, the Bruce moved to reassert his strength in the southwest of Scotland, and then he moved north with some success, taking Perth, Aberdeen, Dundee, as well as Brechin and Cooper Castles. But the success was pretty short-lived. An English force supported by common adherents retook Cooper in Perth. So the Bruce, he moved to try and retake the town, but he had no siege equipment. So instead, he challenged Pembroke to do battle the next day, a challenge that Pembroke accepted. Bruce and his men, they spent that night in the Methven Wood expecting to do battle the next day, but instead, 
Pembroke attacked them while they slept. After some ferocious hand-to-hand combat and a heroic rearguard action, Bruce managed to escape with some of his light cavalry to the hills of Athol, but his forces were decimated and most of his lieutenants captured. It was a dickhead move from Pembroke. You know, like he had given his word to do battle and instead launched a sneak attack. You know, like if they had VAR in the 14th century, it would definitely have been chalked off. Unless, of course, Pembroke was a Manchester United fan, then the result would have stood, you know. But uh, anyway, Bruce... Just four months after his coronation at Schoon was now an outlaw. In September 1306, Pembroke took Kildrummy Castle in Aberdeenshire, and this is where Bruce's wife, Elizabeth de Burgh, was staying with his daughter Marjorie through his first marriage to Isabella of Mar. They were also staying there with Bruce's sister Mary. The castle was held by Robert the Bruce's brother Neil, and the ladies, they were in the personal protection of the Earl of Athol. Neil Bruce, he was taken prisoner in the siege and hanged on in court in Berwick. Athol and ladies, they managed to escape, as well as the Countess of Buchan, um, who had um, crowned Robert the Bruce at Schoon. They managed to escape, and they were making their way for Orkney, and then on to Norway in the protection of Robert Bruce's sister Isabella, who was the Dowager Queen of Norway after she married the Norwegian King Eric II. They made it as far as Tain on the Black Isle, where they were then intercepted by the common-supporting Earl of Ross, who handed them over to English forces. Athol, he was executed in London. Bruce's sister Mary, she was suspended in this weird kind of hanging cage outside of Roxburgh Castle walls, a kind of early example of social distancing. She, basically, she spent four years in a massive bird feeder outside of the castle walls, basically. And Isabella, the Countess of Buchan, she was also given the David Blaine treatment at Berwick Castle. Bruce's daughter Marjorie, she was sent to a nunnery in Yorkshire, as was his sister Christian, uh, sent to a nunnery in Lincolnshire. And Christian's husband, Christopher Seton, who was present at the murder of John Common, he was hanged drawn and quartered in Berwick. And Seton's brother John, he was hanged drawn and quartered in uh, Newcastle. Elizabeth de Burgh, Bruce's wife, she was imprisoned at uh, Burstwick in Holderness in Yorkshire and was spared only because she was the daughter of the Earl of Ulster who had remained loyal to Edward. In late July 1306, Robert the Bruce was ambushed by John MacDougall of Argyll, John Common's son-in-law and the owner of Dunstaffnage Castle, in the Battle of Dalry near Tindrum. The Battle of Dalry was uh, another disaster for Robert Bruce. He suffered horrendous casualties once again and only escaped thanks to another heroic rearguard action. He was lucky to survive. And very famously, after the MacDougall ambush, he he went into hiding. And it's not known for certain where Robert the Bruce spent the winter of 1306-1307. It's become something a kind of myth and mystery. Some say he went to the Hebrides. Others say Ireland, some people say the Northern Isles, even Norway has been mentioned, although recent evidence would suggest that actually he was snatched by a German man. There are Bruce Caves all over the country where he supposedly hid out, and it's in one of these caves that we get the famous story of Robert the Bruce and the Spider. Um, For anyone who's not familiar, Robert the Bruce, he's hidden away in a cave and he witnesses a spider try and fail six times to spin a web the same number of unsuccessful battles against the English that he has endured. He decides that if the spider can successfully spin its web on the seventh attempt, then he too will try again. It's a really, really famous kind of Scottish story of perseverance, and it was the spider that um, encouraged Robert the Bruce to continue at his lowest ebb. It would have been a completely different story if Robert the Bruce had been hiding out in a cave in Australia, wouldn't he be getting the fuck out of that cave if he'd seen a spider in there? You'd think that Edward sent a funnel web to take him out. Now, the story is almost certainly not true. It was made famous by Sir Walter Scott, and Sir Walter Scott is the man who made it up, or 
it's actually thought that this, um, Sir Walter Scott took the story from the Douglas family history. Uh, and actually, it was James Douglas who is said to have seen the spider and been inspired and encouraged Robert the Bruce to continue. When the Bruce re-emerged in the spring of 1307, he did so a rejuvenated guerrilla warrior. But despite his newfound determination, things got off to an even more disastrous start than where he had left off. He launched an expedition from Ireland looking to reassert once again his control over southwest Scotland. His brothers Alexander and Thomas set sail to attack Galloway, while Bruce and his other brother Edward and James Douglas set sail for Ayrshire to attack the castle at Turnbury. But no sooner had Alexander and Thomas landed at Loch Ryan, they were overwhelmed by a local MacDougall force of common supporters headed up by Dougal MacDougall, who had double the forces as well as double the names of his adversaries. Alexander and Thomas, they were captured and sent to Carlisle, where they were hanged and beheaded. And on the Bruce end of things, it was going equally as poorly. The English were swarming the Ayrshire countryside and the attack on Turnberry Castle had to be abandoned. Bruce once again went back into hiding, this time in the wild hinterland of Carrick. So by this point, three of Bruce's brothers had been hanged, drawn and quartered. His daughter and sister were in nunneries. His brother-in-law and his brother-in-law's pals had been executed. His other sister was in a giant bird feeder outside of Roxburgh Castle and his wife was in prison in England. That must have been a very awkward Christmas dinner when the family eventually got back together. That one. The Bruce Rebellion may have been a complete disaster, but still, he continued to evade the English forces. His hide-and-seek reputation was through the roof by this point, and word of his constant evasion spread throughout the country. His myth grew, and as his myth grew, so did his support. Edward, he was becoming increasingly frustrated at Bruce's evasion and Pembroke's supposed inability to capture him. An impatient Pembroke wanted desperately to finally get a hold of the Bruce and in April 1307 he rode into an ambush that the Bruce had set up for him at Glentrool in Galloway. Pembroke had got word of Bruce's whereabouts so he sent a woman dressed in rags to Bruce's camp to beg for food and return with information on the size and the disposition of Bruce's forces. But... The Bruce suspected the woman was a spy and when challenged she told him Pembroke knew where he was and was planning an attack from Carlisle. Bruce prepared an ambush on the narrow track that runs alongside Loch Trull and Pembroke and his forces rode right into it. Now it wasn't a major battle and it certainly wasn't a major victory, there was very few casualties on either side, but finally Robert the Bruce had won an encounter and it was a much, much needed morale boosting win. The major turning point for Bruce came weeks later on the 10th of May 1307 at the Battle of Loudon Hill, which is near Gulston in East Ayrshire. Pembroke had been stung by the reverse at Glentrool and he was being threatened by Edward for what he saw as frustratingly slow progress in putting down the rebellion and capturing Robert Bruce. So, in a reverse of Methven Wood, Pembroke challenged Bruce to open battle this time. And surprisingly, for someone who had decided upon guerrilla tactics over the winter of 1306-1307 as his future tactic, Robert the Bruce, he decided, he accepted, sorry. He chose ground on the slope of Loudon Hill and in front of his army of around 600, he dug three ditches with some expertly camouflaged spikes. And Pembroke, with a force of around 3,000, he had his cavalry charge straight towards the Bruce's forces. And of course, they ended up in the pits where they were then at the mercy of Bruce's spearmen. The rest of Pembroke's force, witnessing this carnage, they decided to flee. Robert the Bruce, he had managed to avenge the reverse at, Ma at Methven Wood and a humiliated Pembroke was forced to limp back to Bothwell Castle. But Bruce's, Bruce's victory, it was in no way anything close to a defeat of the full might of the English army. But news of his victory at Loudon Hill, it brought him 
much, much more support in Scotland and it marked a significant shift in momentum towards his cause. Edward was mortified at the result of Loudon Hill and he was more determined than ever, despite his age and his poor health, to hunt down Robert Bruce and to deal to him a similar fate that had befallen William Wallace. Edward, he had all of the captured Scottish rebels in England executed regardless of their rank, and despite unrest in England over the cost of the Scottish expeditions, he sent another English army north, this time headed by a son Edward, soon to be Edward II. In 1307, he moved north himself. He was in his late 60s and in poor health, and he was forced to pause at Lanarkist Castle in North Cumbria to rest. It was a rest that would last six months. From here, he would write to his captains, badgering, harrowing them to find and capture Robert the Bruce, which they were incapable of doing. He finally managed to rouse himself, and on the 6th of July 1307, he led his army to Burgon-Sands, on the English side of the Solway Firth. He died the next morning in sight of the land that he thought he had conquered, but which was once again in the midst of rebellion. Edward, hammer of the Scots, dying wish was that he not be buried in a state befitting of a king until the Scots had been crushed. And his tomb at Westminster Abbey, it remains unremarkable to this day. It's a kind of unadorned chest of grey marble. It is in central London, however, so it's still costing him, you know, well over a grand a week in rent. And with Edward gone, Scotland now had a far better chance of freeing itself from English oppression. His death could not have come at a better time for Robert Bruce. With Edward gone, he had a far better chance of victory because Edward was a brilliant, hot-headed, ruthless leader who swept aside anyone who dared cross him and is not remembered nearly as fondly as he thought he would be. He's basically the 14th century's Lance Armstrong. And with him gone, Bruce could now embark on his own tour de force. So that brings us to the end of the podcast, folks. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If this is the first time that you're listening to the Montebank History Scotland podcast, then check out some of the other episodes. It's the same thing. If you enjoyed this one, you'll like the rest. Uh, and do what people ask you to do at the end of podcasts. Please like, share, tell a friend. It all really does make a big, big difference. Please help me out with that. Uh, and follow me on social media, at Montebank Tours, um, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all that kind of stuff. It all really, really does help. You can support the podcast you can buy me the equivalent of a cup of coffee if you enjoyed a few of the episodes at buy me a coffee I'm just on there at Montebank History of Scotland and you can come you become a, a patron of Montebank um, what basically everything I'm putting out on Montebank I've got a YouTube channel as well again at Montebank History of Scotland and if you're enjoying the content I'm putting out you can become a, a, a patron of the podcast of the YouTube channel um, and you can buy me like the equivalent of a cup of coffee every month it can be as little as like a pound two pound it really is genuine Genuinely, genuinely appreciated. What I try and do is each week through my Patreon and buy me a coffee account, I try and raise enough money to send someone deserving a bottle of whiskey. So it could be a, a kind of key worker, it could be a NHS worker, it could be a patient parent, or just a thoroughly sound person who deserves it. Um, all you need to do is basically follow me on social media, leave me a comment, send me a DM. Um, leave a comment on uh, Patreon or buy me a coffee and I pick one at random. And what I try and do is I try and match the whiskey with something that we've been talking about during the podcast. So today's whiskey is going to be the Isle of Arran, which I'm going for. Um, and I'm going for that because that is one of the places where it's said that Robert the Bruce is supposed to have hidden out in the winter of 1306-1307. I'm choosing that because I visited Arran uh, in September last year, had an amazing time, and I got very excited about being in the Bruce Cave. Um, so, Arran used to have an amazing reputation for whiskey. Um, and when, when whiskey kind of 
when blends became the the real kind of driving force of the the Scotch whisky industry, then Aaron just couldn't keep up with the kind of demand for quantity over quality. So the last distillery in Aaron was Lag Distillery. It closed its doors in 1837. They reopened another distillery. It's a fantastic distillery in the north of the island at Loch Ranza. And they actually opened another one at Lag, the original spot, um, just last year in 2019. So I think the way they work it is Loch Ranza is for their kind of like... Um, what you would describe as Highland, kind of Speyside style drams, and Lag is going to be the more kind of peated whiskey. I mean, don't quote me on that, but I think that's what they're going for. And interesting as well, uh, Aaron is the only distillery that's allowed to use the image of Robert Burns in their bottle, and they've got a, a special kind of Burns um, edition, um, which I thought would be kind of gimmicky, and actually I bought it, and it was absolutely fantastic, so I highly, highly recommend it. Like I say, you can nominate someone to receive that bottle, just leave me a wee bit of money so I can buy the bottle and give me a wee follow DM, whatever. Thank you so, so much for listening, folks. And I, uh, I'll i see you all next time. Cheers now. Bye-bye.